Hi, I'm Paddy Hoey of Edgehill University and welcome to Series 2, Episode 5 of the Football Collective Podcast. This week I am chatting to committed collective member Dr Joe Cable of the University of Gloucestershire. We began by chatting about our shared background in journalism scholarship, the role that social media plays in contemporary activism and how the internet has changed the British media's reporting of football. We finished off by discussing Joe's fascinating research on Manchester City and England's Raheem Sterling who has cannily used Instagram and social media to wrestle the control of the public narrative of his life back from lurid tabloid stories. We hope you enjoy it and please look for Josh Dean's two-part special on football and betting on next week's podcast. Could you tell us uh, what your first football memory was, what your first game was and who was your first favourite player? I mean, my first football memory, this is one that always sticks with me, is I remember being taken to Ninian Park to go see Cardiff City and they beat Newport County 4-1 but my main memory of the game was sitting in the grandstand sitting on wooden seats and the ball boy wasn't able to get a ball back over the perimeter fence so that tells you when it was so that is what would that be mid 80s probably about 86 87 so that's like my earliest football memory and that's probably the earliest game I remember too and who was your first favorite player oh it's probably John Barnes because even though I've never been to Anfield I've always had a soft spot for Liverpool um, but as I've spoken to people before, and I always tell my students as well, whenever I cover things like Hillsborough, I remember watching it on TV as a nine-year-old and just being completely struck by it. So football's always had a, a kind of fascination for me and how it interplays with society as a whole. And you come from a journalism background, don't you? It was like sort of journalism and that area of offshoot of media studies where your scholarship kind of started. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I come from a journalism studies background, so my PhD, for instance, looked at various different protest groups and how they use different types of tactics, say petitions or even direct action, and how they use those to get their message out into the wider public domain, but also what they thought about it. So it involved things like a content analysis of media coverage just to see how they were framed. I also talked to protesters, activists themselves to find out what they saw as things like success and failure. And the main reason I did that is because if you look at quite a bit of protest scholarship, it sees success and failure as being positive coverage. But if you talk to the activists, they're like, well, well, for a start, it depends on their aims and objectives. If they even want media coverage, they might not be bothered. But sometimes they might think even bad coverage gets people talking or it's a case of, well, it was to be expected. We still may, we may have managed to change some people's minds. And you can look at that in terms of um, Extinction Rebellion at the minute, uh, which I've watched with quite a lot of interest. I'm not sure if I'll write something on it, but it's been really interesting how they kept going along. And then suddenly they do the action on top of the commuter train. And it's like, oh, that's not going to go down well. And then that became the focus which is generally how protest is spoken about, is if you disrupt like the public, then that's going to be that's going to be what's reported. That's the narratives. So that's kind of like my background. And then I moved from protest. I managed to get a sport module set up, uh, so post-PhD, while I was doing uh, a bunch of different contracts, working 
various teaching jobs, uh, research projects. So I started teaching a sport module. And at that time, you had Cardiff City changing the colour of their shirt. You had the various stuff going on with Charlton. And I thought, well, maybe there's something in here. So I did a paper on that. Never managed to get it published, partly from business than anything else. And then I've just gone from there and I've just thought about sport and how you can use sport to explain some of the more complicated issues in society, especially things like, uh, well, my focus at the minute is kind of around things like racism, especially Raheem Sterling. But more than that, I've looked at things like clickbait, the use of clickbait on social media by sports media outlets, gambling sponsorship. Uh, and yeah, at the minute, it's everything's coming up Sterling. <laughs> and do you think that there's a, there's a, a an overlap between you know that that kind of notion of activist media? Everything sort of dates back to the Chiapas Indians and you know Mexico in the mid nineties, and, and it goes through stuff like you know the you know the World Trade Organization riots and the the setting up of indie media and this tremendously utopian perception like a lot of the literature has of the net being something that was going to support grassroots, and perhaps we find out that that that's not the case. But certainly there's a lesson that can be learned by football fans of how those types of groups harness new technology to be able to work around or work over or work through the old kind of hegemonies of broadcast media or newspapers. Yes, definitely. It's, it's, a lot of it seems about learning how to almost game uh, the algorithms. Apologies for getting a bit geeky. But trying to get things higher up and into people's news feeds because the difficulty that thinking just in terms of activists that activists now have is so indie media was theirs it was their own but now you're looking at almost the dependence on extremely big private companies and no one really knows what their algorithms look like how they're making their decisions what kind of things they're throwing up um but also What's getting censored? What's not getting censored? Um, Twitter likes to try and position itself as being a force for democracy ever since it paused its server updates during the Arab Spring. I think that's right. It was either the Arab Spring or the Iranian elections back in the late... um, The the last decade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whereas Facebook just seems to fumble around, tweak its algorithms, allow political adverts that lie. Um, They've just introduced, I teach a module called Journalism Trends. So the whole optimist, pessimist thing I tell students about, about how in the 90s, uh, people either saw the internet as being this wonderful, civic, utopian, democracy reinvigorating space, or they just saw it as it's just going to mirror the real world and end up as just Shopping and porn. Guess which one won? <laughs> the one with all, the one with more money. I don't I don't know which one won, but I'm waiting for a porn video to come from Ocado. Oh, really? Oh dear. <laughs> I, I think it, I think it's really interesting. You know, within the context of the kind of activism that's happened around football, that um, the, these net, you may be dealing with you know terribly uh, politically uh, problematic companies, particularly Facebook which seems to be the kind of plaything of the kind of digital utopian libertarian right winger that Zuckerberg has kind of, you know, revealed himself to be. But it's kind of essential if you want to keep in contact with a certain section of the sort of, you know, football audience that 
doesn't do any other social media other than Facebook. Whereas Twitter, although has answered some of those questions, perhaps displays a similar kind of libertarianism. But it also is brilliant at developing the kind of weak tie, uh, but highly connected uh, networks of fans that can kind of coalesce really quickly. If you think about you know some of the stuff that you know we've just been talking about off air, like football <clears throat> fans supporting food banks, you know, or, or or you know the on the ball girls who basically transformed the discussions around period poverty and football simply by using <clears throat> Twitter and Instagram. Is that you know there's sometimes we have to hold our noses, but it's essential to look at how the networks are formed and work in these sort of spaces. It's where the people are. Uh, that's what always needs to be remembered. So regardless of whether or not people like Twitter or Facebook and how they're run, how they're funded, you know, the data they gather, it's if you want to impact and if you want to get your message to people, uh, you know, the general public or even other football fans, you have to go where they are. So whether that be a Facebook group or jump in on a hashtag or even you know, lots of football fans still use they feel kind of antiquated, but football forums. I know they're amazing, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, Reddit is like an old-fashioned bulletin board forum, and it's one of the biggest uh, social medias. And stuff has come from there, cropped up from there. It's like the the wisdom of crowds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I guess we've both written similar kinds of books. Um, yours is on protest campaigns, media and political opportunities, and mine's on republican activism. But I, I, I do think that there's there, there's a much to be learned from that era of protest that could be applied to some nascent football campaigns today. Yeah, definitely. It's things like keeping the message very simple. Um, and when you're working within the confines of social media... I know Twitter increased its character limit, but most people still try and keep it within 140, which is still quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then they try and change people's behaviour, but no, still keep it within 140. Um, and it is, as we've spoken before, you're almost playing into a kind of a kind of news value if you think at how media companies try and get people to share. Their, their articles, their information with their friends and family, then you'll be looking at uh, apologies for using the very business term search engine optimization. <laughs> so you're looking for the keywords. You're yeah. looking for what are people searching for? I think after Google, Facebook search is the next biggest search engine. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it's, it's huge and people... I, think, I suppose it's people looking for other people, but they might be looking for things like recipes, um, all of the tidbits of information, because Facebook keeps expanding its its functionality. Um, I heard a podcast the other week that it's even getting in, it wants to get into things like dating, because it's got people's data yeah, yeah. and their likes and dislikes. They think they might be able to match people up, which is slightly big brother and terrifying but it also feels like a natural progression because they look at other companies like say tinder and they go well that's a good idea let's copy it and put it on our our user base of billions have um, you have you um listened to the butterfly effect 
uh, no. by John Ronson. It's basically it's a seven part series about pornography, um, an audio series. I hasten to add, mm. and he basically says that. <laughs> Speaking about porn yeah. and e-commerce, <laughs> but he basically says that you know pornography has been transformed by SEO. It's been transformed by actually knowing what people were searching for, and it, it transformed that industry in between ten to fifteen years. Completely changed it, you know. Oh, wow. In in the blink, almost in the blink of an eye, in media terms, it's fascinating. Listen, um, it's called the butterfly effect. It, it's it's. I think you still. Ha- I think it might still be available as a podcast. It's certainly on Audible. Um, but I'd recommend if you're if anybody out there listening is interested in the notion of SEO, where people search, and 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 how those are harnessed by algorithms. That's a fascinating listen. Yeah, definitely. That sounds really interesting. No, uh, John Ronson is he's a great writer. Uh, funnily enough, he's Welsh. Um, <laughs> uh, his oh, what was the book? Uh, the man who served uh He did a really interesting one, all about almost like shaming culture. Oh, so, for yes. instance, he told he told a story about there was a PR woman who sent a tweet that people construed as racist, and by the time her plane landed, she'd lost her job, and just that fascinating use of emotion on social media and how you can tweet these things you might think it's nothing but then if it gets picked up it gradually gets spun and spun and spun and away it goes yeah it's called so you've been publicly shamed that's it that that opening anecdote you're talking about it's fascinating like you know she she said something she thought was tremendously woke and uh, sarcastic turned her phone off flew to africa turned her phone on and she'd been outed as a as a, a virulent racist because yeah. people couldn't read the sarcasm of the tweet. Uh, J.K. Rowling, for instance, has just uh, she tweeted something yesterday that's been construed as being transphobic. And Twitter is strange. It has this weird kind of dual. It does feel really democratizing because there is, you can get so much information. I use it for work all the time just to find uh, journalistic style articles that students can engage with. But then on the other hand, it's also like an electronic hate mob. Yeah, know, yeah. With like pitchforks and torches. And whether that be uh, Russian troll farms or bots or or just generally the RC public um, jumping down on things. But emotion on Twitter just seems so... Fragile is probably not the word, but so fraught. It's extremes of up and down. And, There's and, and it's a, also, a lot of anger. And I suppose, like, you know, we're roughly doing the same kind of, you know, I'd say the literature review of our early work would probably be relatively similar. And it mm. seems that we're not too far away from what Kaz Sunstein was talking about, about echo chambers. And he was writing about social media and the blogosphere and it, the, them being echo chambers as opposed to, you know, democratically pluralist spaces. He was doing that back in the early 2000s. And if you look at Twitter now, especially around the last election, or the election last week. It was an amazing echo chamber of people telling each other exactly what they thought they wanted to hear, to the point where it becomes a solipsism, is that you begin to believe stuff that patently isn't true. Yeah, and I feel for I feel for journalists. Um, one of the things uh, I quite like to keep to heart, one of the things I keep to heart is 
sometimes, especially in academia, we can be far too critical of journalists. You know, they're trying to do a job, they're people, they're working within a system and a structure. There are certain things they can do and they cannot do. But you've got people from all sides. And sports journalists get this a lot too. I listen to a whole wealth of different sporting podcasts. Is that they're accused of bias from everywhere. And we all have innate biases, I guess. But it's kind of like, you can't be biased against everyone. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, And then you add on the gender layer. So people like Laura Kunzberg gets such heat on social media. Um, But she works, she's working within a system. She's a political journalist. She's within the Westminster bubble. And that's generally how lobby journalists report is they're close to those sources. They keep anonymity because it's, it's a certain kind of currency. It adds a certain kind of exclusivity to the kind of information that they have. Um, and then they get criticized by people outside of that, but, they're just reporting on the system that's that they were trying to work within. Yeah, but how you change all that? I'm not entirely sure. I'd, I'd I'd like to support you, but a bump. But listen, you didn't come here for a lecture on communism. Um, <laughs> get, get, getting back to football and specifically the reporting of football, you've yeah. done this fascinating paper where you've you started off looking at, you know, it made my old journalism tutor's heart swell whenever I saw you know the words Galtung and Rouge and Galtung and Rouge revisited. This notion of news values and how you know news values are conceived within newsrooms among people within a kind of journalism elite bubble, and those affect how we report on issues. Can be any issue from a car crash to an elite footballer, as you were saying. Can you talk us through the, the sort of the start of the project, what news values are within the context of football, and how Raheem Sterling has done so much to wrestle the power away from newsrooms back into his own. You know, he, he now, what you're saying is that he effectively holds a great degree of power when it comes to the reporting of him. Yeah. Um, the kind of background to this is I've been looking at Rahim now. I think I gave a paper in 2018 up in Glasgow to the Football Collective all about, I compared him to Harry Kane, looking at how he was covered. And what I've gradually seen, as well as the race part of it, is how he's treated or was treated very much like any other celebrity. And that focus on the private life. Um, You could put him, if you're thinking of golfing and rouge, if you think about elite people, but then you also look at Harkup and O'Neill's updates to golfing and rouge, and it's things like shareability. So this, this... gossipy angle, whether it's Sterling buying a Greggs or taking a Ryanair flight or um, buying his mum a house. It's this, it's this, this like, oh, look, here's something you don't know. Here's something that is, it's unusual enough, but it features someone who's recognisable. It crosses the sporting divide, so it might have appeal beyond football fans. Um, and it's a way of getting eyeballs. So what What's changed since the original paper, I think it was 1965 it was re- yeah, written. Yeah, it was, yeah. And Harkup and O'Neill touch on this as well, is the competition for readers is incredibly intense. And how do you, we've already mentioned things like search engine optimization. You know, how many football stories do you see that try and crowbar in the names of teams like Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea, just to get people 
who have searched for those clubs to look at something, I don't know, about, say, a smaller club uh, lower down the leagues. Um, so this fierce competition. And then, of course, you have new players on the scene. So you have people like The Athletic who managed to grab, I forget how many gyms it was now, I think it was at least 50 of some of the, the top-ranking sports uh, football journalists in the country. Uh, it gave them a big pay rise and are getting them to do three long reads per week. And you've got that kind of quality subscription-based service. And yet when you've got the tabloids who have an advertising base where it's really difficult to make money from digital advertising because people either use an ad blocker or they just ignore it. So you're just trying to get people to click all of the time. And when I've been going through the articles about Sterling, I've been looking at what information they use and his own platforms, things like his Instagram account, have been used as a source for news. So there's no primary journalism, say a journalist picking up the phone, talking to Sterling himself. It's sitting and looking at his social media account. And you'll see that'll happen for all different types of celebrity. And what that comes into, I'm trying to remember if Harker Peniel have touched on it, but it's all about generating content. Yeah. Uh, and the constant need for content. Because one of the things I've done is I scraped Twitter for tweets mentioning Raheem Sterling from uh, the Mail's various uh, Twitter accounts, but also the Sun. And you can see that the personal information tends to spike when there's things like an international break or it's the off-season, so during the summer. And that would be because there's no football to report on. Uh, well, no top-level football to yeah, report yeah. on. So what else gets reported? It's it's Maguire with his shiny backpack or, you know, it, again, it's Sterling on holiday in Jamaica. It's how do we get content? How do we get people clicking? And this constant need for clicks. And that's the interesting thing as well is, is that the, the economy of tabloid <laughs> newspapers, um, I come from, I was a, a, a journalist on the Liverpool Echo before I got into the academy. And one of the things I have noticed having straddled the kind of non-digital and the digital ages is that we could make do with, you know, a massive paper on a Thursday with literally hundreds of job ads in them because that made that paper extremely um, profitable on that given day. And if you have 52 of those Thursdays and 52 Good Fridays, that, that adds up to quite a lot of money over a year. But whenever your audience declines, it has done for papers and you start relying on, you know, pay, on having to produce digital news. The net is completely voracious. You can never fill it up. It constantly demands content, no matter how banal that content is. And consequently, it's not very uncommon, is it? It's, it's you know, one listicle about, you know, 17 things you saw whilst queuing for a pie at the match is every bit as relevant as a, a big expose on something that happened in the club's history 50 years ago because it's literally just a piece of footfall. And you have to constantly feed that footfall to get the higher rate from the advertisers. And of course, you kind of devalue lots of content, don't you? It becomes a kind of homogenous, flattened, mishmash just of content. Yeah, or you focus on just um, the top six. So, for instance, I did a I did a paper that was published 
towards the beginning of 2018, where a friend of mine, Glenn Mottasad, who works down in City University, he he quite likes data journalism. So he managed to scrape for me. It was about 1.2, one and a half uh, million tweets from 15 different sports outlets. Um looking at football and we looked at things like what the most common hashtags were and you can see the top six so the top six clubs in the country are extraordinarily popular because it also has that global appeal um and then you think well what kind of audience are they serving so yeah people are interested in the top but what about fans of clubs further down and especially when you get that in regional news um I mean, I don't know whether when you were at the Echo and it was changing over, did they have any like metrics on the wall? Um, um, I, not really. But I think one of the things they found, uh, one of the things I found very interesting was that when your when your model is based on selling hyper local advertising, so <clears> you're <throat> selling Phil Thompson fireplaces or you know, or Rapid Hardware, or any of the big names. Most British cities have big names, you know, are just, you know, relevant to that city. And they 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 tend to keep the local paper going in some way or another. But if you've got 650,000 views on a piece about, I don't know, say Raheem Sterling when he was at Liverpool, you know, very few of that 650,000 people are actually from Merseyside. Therefore, you have a massively diminished potential to sell goods to local advertisers. So therefore, it, it really hits at the, the, the financial model of, of those kinds of services. And, and I think that's a really interesting thing, is that in the globalization of the football readership and of the football economy, as it were, the kind of regional financial regional roots of clubs is being transformed too, as a consequence. Yeah, yeah. You can look at uh, one of the most amusing things is if you look at Man United's partnerships page, and all the, they have a territorial sponsorship strategy. So they will go and get popular brands in, say, India, for example. But they have things like an official paint sponsor um, and stuff <laughs> like that. And it, it just feels really strange. But that's the age we live in. Uh, and that's the world in which they exist. So it's a lot, like you say, it's a lot less about Manchester, Greater Manchester, and more about where can we find new fans, new markets? Yeah. But you can see how that culture is clashing against, well, things like human rights and um, justice. You know, for instance, Liverpool at the World Club Cup in Qatar. Yeah. It it just doesn't sit very, very nicely because, you know, Liverpool and Liverpool's fans are extraordinarily socially conscious and it can't be easy to go all the way to Qatar, a place with a history of... Uh, human rights abuses and the building of the stadiums for the 2020 World Cup where people have died. Um, and it's, it's, it's this weird kind of public good versus money versus spreading the game. It's like, what's going to win out? Even amazingly progressive woke people that I know kind of looked at Sterling as a kind of, oh, there's, there's that Sterling, you know what he's about. Because he'd been such a, a, a victim of a vicious trolling campaign by the tabloids. And that seems to have been turned on his head relatively recently when he decided, right, I'm going to come out and talk about the ingrained racism in how these two newspapers talked about me. And I'm also going to assume a level of control 
over what people see of me. Can you talk through what he did? So what Sterling did, it's really interesting. If you look at the trajectory of the news about him, is it's almost like before he stood up to this, there was probably no other time in his career he would have been able to do it. It was December 2018. It was following the racist abuse at Chelsea. Um, and so at this point, he's at Manchester City. He's an established England international. Uh, he's an established first-team player with Manchester City under one of the most successful co uh, coaches in history. And he took a stand. He was like, right, I've had enough of this. But one of the best things he did is he didn't make it about himself. He went on his Instagram, which has, um, I think, a couple of million followers, and he put up an image of an article about Phil Foden, a white player, buying his mum a house. And then there's another Manchester City Academy graduate, black player, I always forget his name, um, also buying his mum a house. But the language used, so Foden's called things like a starlet, whereas um, the black player, it's highlighted that he's never played a first-team game or, like, splashing the cash. Uh, it's, it's charged words... Bling is one that always seems to come up as well, and that that f it feels horrifically racially tinged. Um, you know, supposed links to things like hip hop, but that comparison between a white player and a black player, and Sterling, ever since that December, has consistently called out press coverage for how they cover different ethnic uh, ethnic players. So. For instance, Paul Pogba, when he was referred to as having pace and power. Um, so what's generally happened, and you can see this in research of things like how NFL quarterbacks are spoken about. So the white player will always be more intelligent, more cultured, whereas black players are often referred to in terms of their physicality. So they'll have pace, power. Um, they might be referred to, say, for instance, as a beast. And that even trickle down to if you look at the positions that black players used to play more often so for instance on the wing those kind of assumptions those biased assumptions that they don't have the football they wouldn't necessarily have the footballing intelligence to be in the middle of the park obviously that's all nonsense and there are players who show that to be complete nonsense but those narratives have stuck and they've and it's difficult to break out of them. It's almost like a sense of framing. They're easy. Uh, I wouldn't go so far to call it lazy, but they're easy stereotypes. And people will be like, oh, okay, I get that one. You know, young footballer, got lots of money. He's going he's gonna to buy himself a nice house and bling it up. But the other part of Sterling's narrative that gets caught up in all this is he was born in Jamaica, um, so he's had to fight against, I don't know whether, it's quote, whether he's not seen as being English enough. That might be too blunt a phrase to say. But a bit like how Barnes was treated, is that even though he's representing England, he's chosen to represent England, Is it adds that seed of doubt. And then look at someone like Harry Kane, the white player. Uh, the one thing that I always remember, and this is part of the, paper I delivered last year was when he scored the penalty against uh, Colombia the commentator goes bang 
and he's one of our own. And that phrase, he's one of our own, is something that has stuck with me. And what does that mean? How does that play into things around nationalism? Because nationalism plays a big part in especially tabloid narratives, as we've seen with things like Brexit. Um, And it, it becomes this big, complex kind of ball. But coming back to Sterling and his use of his platform, what it showed was the shift in power dynamics. So access to players is for sports journalists becoming increasingly and increasingly much more difficult. And players are taking it upon themselves to use their social media accounts to show, in some senses, a bit of authenticity. But then on the flip side, it can also be tightly controlled. So they control the narrative. So it's like, this is the part of my life that I am going to let the public see. And in some ways, that'll be, they'll be able to remove some of the salaciousness and things like paparazzi photographs and stuff like that. If you're interested in their private life, just go on their Instagram and you'll see a picture of their house, for instance, uh, if that's what you're really into. Yeah. But it also means that if they have concerns, so it was really heartening to see during the election that even though in interviews Raheem Sterling has said he's not an actively political person, he was encouraging people to both register to vote and to vote in the election itself. Which when you think about stereotypes of young people not being interested in politics, when someone like Sterling comes along, he's now become a bit of bit of an icon, someone who's outspoken, but he's also very calm with it. He's not like banging on the table or anything like that. He's just taking things apart and demonstrating what he thinks, how he views the world. Um, and you, you, it's different to what you may have had in the past with footballers. Um, well, he doesn't have to pander to, you know, a, a, a stupid kind of photo call in the manner of, you know, um, Laurie Cunningham, Cyril Regis, and Benton Batson. Whenever there was so-called three degrees under yeah. under Ron Atkinson, is that if you're a, a a black British player now, you no longer have to exist within the kind of cultural stereotypes of tabloid newspapers that you can present yourself as you wish, for good or bad. Yeah, and Muslim players tweeting them, uh, posting pictures of themselves going on the Hajj and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't think you would have ever got that in a newspaper. But they're kind of like, well, this is what we believe. This is us as people. And that plays into an idea of how celebrities use social media in terms of authenticity, like a peak, a peak backstage. So this is the genuine person. And it's a counter narrative, which celebs haven't really had before. Uh, you would just have normally scandal, which comes back to news values and things like bad news. Uh, so you'll have the scandals or, for instance, Sterling's tattoo which was a major story just before the World Cup in 2018. And he's able to stand against it and communicate directly with fans. Now, the other thing that you have is that his social media following is bigger than most of the media outlets reporting on him. So he has a bigger audience and a bigger global audience. And that's not something that's been seen before. It's like the source, the sources of news, they're almost able to flip it on its head. It doesn't mean that journalism and journalistic output is unimportant anymore. It's just that they're not completely dependent upon it to, say, raise their profile or talk about an issue that they care about.
And let us not forget, Joe, that the story, nay, mystery of the year was played <laughs> itself out tangentially to football on Instagram. And I, of course, speak of the Rooney Git and Vardy Git and uh, Colleen and Rebecca, the flushing out of who was reporting stories behind Colleen's back. It was, it was fascinating. Or as I think the I don't think it was the tabloids, but they ran with it. Someone came up with the hashtag of Wagatha Christie. <laughs> and whoever that was, they should be given the rest of next year off. Yeah. But that was fascinating. And so controlling the narrative against a particular newspaper... Uh, that was which the song. It was which, the song. Which isn't yeah. overly, overly popular in Liverpool. Uh, it was fascinating. Because the sun has... It's called something like the secret wag... So we've done the secret footballer, et cetera, et cetera. There's now the secret wag. And when the Rooney stuff came out, it was really interesting to see how those stories either dried up or changed their focus somewhat. Because tabloid newspapers created the concept. The Sun probably single-handedly created the concept of the wag at, was it 2006? That the, that the Was it the Germany World Cup? In a way, that kind of demolished the notion of the wag or the cultural importance or even sort of highlighted the emptiness of that kind of signifier. This is somebody who's famous simply because they're married to a famous footballer. Um, yeah, it was that Sven in 2006. Was it 2000, 2002, 2006, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Roger Domingetti has written really well about the whole idea of WAG and yeah. how it positions women, because um, it's horrific, because you very rarely see it the other way around. The closest you get is... Uh, a Hungarian swimmer, her husband has her nickname, the Iron Lady, tattooed on his arm, and he's really vociferous in his cheering and often gets a bit of coverage because of that. But you don't really get that idea of husbands and boyfriends or husbands and girlfriends. Yeah, it'd be husbands and boyfriends. A hab doesn't work even, does it? A hab, no. A hab doesn't. Well, listen, Joe, thanks a million, and... Sure, hopefully, right. hopefully we'll talk in the future when you've got more work out, but uh, thanks for your time. That's all right. Well, I hope I've given you everything you need. <laughs>